0: Hello everyone, this is Kathak Kachakkar. My name is Pramit and this place is designed to be a central platform to bring conversations with Kathakars across the country. Today I have with me Sebi Lee. She is a dynamic artist of exceptional mastery, sophisticated musicality and dramatic brilliance she is a leading disciple of kathak legend pandit chitresh das co-founder of the leela collective and dean of the chandam school of Kathak. sebi is a respected internationally is respected internationally for her virtuoso character roles in major productions for the chitresh das dance company including sita haran hanuman beloved tribal prince and marij tormented demon Ramayans mantra who's a scheming maidservant, and the electrifying guru in Shiva. Her outstanding portrayal of Hanuman inspired Leela Dance Collective's acclaimed Son of the Wind presented at the Green Center 2017, Hollywood's 4th Theatre, and Mumbai, India's Royal Opera House in 2019. Recognized by the Alliance of California Traditional Arts in 2016 as a master artist, Sebi has, has mentored many generations of dancers and with the support of the Haas Foundation, She has the mesmerizing solo work, Hovi and Changi, a heart-rendering tale of great heroism and tragically star-crossed lovers. Saibiji, how are you?
1: Namaskar Pramit, very well. How
0: are you? Namaskar Saibiji, glad to have you here. And just to start off with, I wanted to discuss uh, your Talking about teaching, you, you talked you talked about teaching being a performance in itself. So could you tell us a little bit about that?
1: Teaching is one of my very, very great passions. And part of the reason why I think of teaching as a performance in itself comes from my experience of watching my Guruji, pandit Drashtas, teach. For him, teaching was 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And he always was finding a way to reach each and every person that he might be speaking to. Um, And this could be students in a classroom, but he also cared to communicate with everybody. So, for instance, uh, if the person was coming to pick up his garbage or his compost, he actually would go out and speak to that person. And in the course of it, always somehow brought the conversation to the place where he's talking about the art form and not exclusively for himself, but also having asked the other person very much about their lives and what they are doing in their lives. Um, And I think to do that, you have to, Not be in a performance, a show performance necessarily, but it's more of the communication part of the performance. When you are teaching in the classroom, you have to give out a lot of energy because you are asking for a lot of energy from the student. So you have to figure out, how do I get that energy out of the student? Sometimes it's through lots of vigorous voice action. Sometimes it's through speaking to what they are thinking about at that time. So you are trying to be inside their heads in some ways because you wanna understand how they think. And then on the other hand, you are also trying to figure out how to get that information to them. So in that communication exchange, if you just do it as a very flat experience, then I think it doesn't really touch to the heart and the soul. And so when you are really opening up the lines of communication, I think of it as a performance because that is the way I feel when I am performing. I am, I'm not up there to kind of show and get applause. I'm really there to communicate with the musicians and communicate with the audience, and hopefully in that communication, make a, a spontaneous co-creation of something very beautiful and very singular in that moment.
0: Understood <clears throat> that, uh, you know, you're communicating with different people and that communication is a sense of performance and i guess if you could help me clear this out like because when me when i think of performance i think of uh, you're on stage you're playing a character and you know you're trying to get a message across and so i guess when it comes to teaching how do you make sure that you're also real with them or what am i missing in this equation
1: yeah so i think that's what i was trying to distinguish from what normally is thought about performance mm-hmm. so i am not taking on a persona and walking into the classroom and then transmitting information. I'm definitely going there as myself, but I am thinking about for me, the true essence of performance for me is communication. So I am communicating my love and the beauty of the art form to whoever is watching or listening. That's, that's how I am as a performer. So I am not, I'm not there to show of the pretty costume and the makeup and all that. That is part of the visual package, but that's a very small part of it. For me, the biggest part of performance is communication. So that when the audience is communicated, they should be um, transported from their daily lives to a different place that is the what that's what I think is the reason why we perform um and why people want to come to a performance they don't want to sit in the seat and be thinking about all their accounting and what they're going to cook for dinner because that means that you are not capturing them and taking them on a journey with you when you do then you are really really communicating with each other and then it's a very exciting thing and a very transporting thing. So it's the same thing when you're teaching. Uh, if you are the student, I need to make sure that you are fully present and fully there and with an open mind and heart to hear and listen for the information to come in. If you are distracted, then that means that I am, don't have the communication with you. So I have to do whatever it takes <laughs> to get that channel open. And I think for me, that is part of what I consider the performance aspect. It's not has, not taking on a persona. It's not sort of inauthentic- inauthenticity that way, but it's actually going to the essence of people's being and the, that communication. And the strength of that communication is mm-hmm. part of the performance.
0: Understood. Thank you for clarifying that difference between and helping us understand what you think of as a performance and how you that brings comes to your teaching as well. So when it comes to your teaching, say if you if you do find students who are kind of disinterested, not really fully there, how do you bring them back? What do you typically do? Can you give us an example?
1: Um, well, the interesting thing is that I think that all of the things that we do before mm-hmm. we come into the room right. to dance
0: mm-hmm. are
1: part of how we let go of the distractions of the outer world. So when you arrive someplace, the first thing that you do is like take off your shoes. And you, and you take off your shoes and you place them somewhere. Mm-hmm. If you take your shoes off and you throw them and you rush in, then you're not taking the time to leave of you behind so then that I'm very mindful of that so then when I do that I place them and I I make a commitment to leaving part of myself outside and coming in when we come to the studio itself we actually namaskar to the studio space Mm -hmm. again if you just walk in you can then carry a lot of stuff with you. But if you take the time and stop and breathe and make the namaskar and leave another layer of yourself outside, then when you walk into the room, again, you have more openness and more clarity of mind. When we put on our kongru, Guruji always said, your class has already started. Hmm. So we never chat while we're putting on our kongru. We're very quiet and meditative. And we do that very respectfully because again we're leaving another part of ourselves away and we are bringing ourselves to the dance with our instruments which are the kuru and then finally we do pranam and that pranam is hopefully the last layer of the outside world that you are going to be leaving behind and you are blessing the ground that you are dancing upon you are taking the blessings of the knowledge and the gurus and you are fully in the dance space so ideally and that this is what we teach our students Mm -hmm. you will have committed yourself and be open at that time of course it's not a perfect world so definitely in the middle of class lots of things happen Mm -hmm. um I, I think that sometimes I reach students by um, really emphasizing recitation and singing. That is part of our teaching. Mm-hmm. So I do find that if you are not, not engaged vocally, mm-hmm. you can let your mind wander somewhere else. But yeah. singing and reciting, you have to recite on Tao. So then you mm-hmm. have to put part of your mind on the Tao. You have to sing in Sur. So you have to put your mind on the tambura. Then you have to dance and you have to put your mind on the dance. If you Mm -hmm. are focusing on all of these things, you should not have any time (laughs) to be thinking about the outside world. Mm -hmm. Um, So the dance, the way that we uh, vigorously teach and stay with all these things are very helpful for keeping students in the moment and really engaged in the dance and they are very important parts of the dance anyway so um, i think those things are helpful
0: okay Uh, the thing yeah i've always thought of like wearing the hungroos and taking shoes off as a way to get to more dance slow, but not as taking off layers and being more intentional with it um because i think i used to uh, like it takes me five minutes to put my hungroos on in a way that they won't slip off right now so that kind of annoys me, but I've never thought of like that being part of the process itself or being intentional about that. So that's really interesting to me. And uh, since you talked about, you know, talking about sur and keeping the lay, and we'll go into kathak with with it. But uh, first of all, I wanted to know if, um, like if if someone's practicing, say, just kathak, and they wanted to add, say, tabla or singing lessons. Or if and if they could just pick one as a result of how they're being trained or their schedule, which one would you say benefit, would benefit them more if they're just starting into Kathak? Or if you can pick it all?
1: I see. So you're asking me that if you are newer to the dance...
0: Yes. And, and, you you learn, and you're learning Kathak, but, yeah. in, but you don't have like... Uh, but you want to add on like singing lessons or tabla lessons, but you could only add one because of scheduling. <laughs> Very hypothetical question doesn't apply to me at all, but <laughs> I'm just curious because if, if there is a right answer, if there's a way to think about it, or how should one approach it?
1: Um, I don't think that there's a right answer and a wrong answer. I mm-hmm. I believe that both of those things are actually equally important to okay. Um, I think that if you uh, I think if you are challenged. Mm -hmm. particularly with one or the other, then maybe you might want to seek out help with that one first. But I would say not necessarily to the exclusion of the other. The one thing that's very difficult to balance is that when you do go to study uh, vocally or you go to study tabla, that teacher is going to want you to focus on that. Right. So then it does end up being a little bit of a pull. So hmm. ideally, you all, all dancers should actually be taking both of those things uh, all the time. Um, and that makes them a much better and stronger dancers. And that's the way the masters were trained. Hmm. So our Guruji could sing and compose mm-hmm. um, and musically. And he played the tabla in our classes, and he played the tabla for himself. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, that was one of the things that he used to do, um, play tabla and do footwork and make Sabal Jabab with himself. And um, so those, these both of these things are inextricable from each other and the dance. They are really, really, really important. When you're on stage, it's very often that the dancer sings mm-hmm. Um okay right so they would be singing themselves they used mm-hmm. to sing themselves nowadays often you have a singer accompaniment but mm-hmm. could all you often would be trained to do it yourself
0: Hmm. okay understood yeah thanks for explaining that part and one thing i want to know is again uh, just to uh follow up on the singing thing um so uh as someone who just started it, new i'm kind of new into kathak so i kind of i kind of understand how like tabla or taal would, would benefit me cause it like helps me get a sense of the rhythm and you know keeping in track of that uh, the singing part i wanted to get a little more clarity on because one so one benefit you said is like if i'm on on stage and i could sing my own humri and then say perform to it uh, what are the other benefits that singing brings into your kathak practice specifically
1: so Singing and recitation, for me, are both uh, together. Hmm. So um, the, when, when you are dancing with live music, mm-hmm. the tabla is playing the teka, shape mm-hmm. of the teka, giving you the rhythmic cycle. But yep. the person who is playing the melodic instrument, the lehera nagma, is also giving you the shape of the cycle. They are, they are playing a melody that lasts for, if you're in Tintal, 16 beats and repeats. Mm-hmm. And so as a dancer, if I'm able to sing that and, re- and recite my, my bowls or sing the teka, I'm mm-hmm. reinforcing all of these things in, in myself. And so it's making my understanding of the Thal, of the melody when I'm going to be dancing with live music, it's really increasing my understanding of that. Um, it also does mean that if I'm stuck without a musician of any sort, that mm-hmm. I can carry on. <laughs> I mean, it's not right now. Everybody's very happy because you you take your iPhone and you have all these apps that work for you, but you know these apps didn't, didn't exist only just a few years ago. So, um, and then what happens if you have some kind of massive power outage or you forget your your phone battery or phone charger? Then what are you going to do? So you should be able to do it yourself. So this is this is part of that, um, and you will you will notice that um, you know most musicians like a lot of. Tableau players can sing beautifully. Not necessarily like they're going to be a, a, a professional singer, but they have taken um, uh, vocal classes or they play the violin and play the tabla. And this is very common because when you know these things, then when you are working with those musicians and your understanding of, of what's happening all around you is much better than if you only know one thing.
0: Understood. And yes, definitely, I think I'm fairly spoiled in the sense having multiple apps, <laughs> being able to set the exact number of beats per minute to know if my, that car is going up and down. Uh, yeah, so it's hard to picture a world without that for me because that's the world I started, Kathak. <laughs> yes,
1: so. yes. Well, yes, when I, um, I'm still remembering back in the time of, mm-hmm. I looked through eight track tapes Cassette types, CDs, you know, then switch Mm. to all of these MP3s. So at each and every time, it's it's handy, but it wasn't there before. And you still had to make your life work Mm. in that vacuum. And who knows when you might have to produce that again. Um, It has actually been, has happened to us where we were, um, doing a performance, and we happen to be we ought we prefer to work with live music, but sometimes we're using recording, mm-hmm. and the recording has has stopped. Oh! And when the recording stops, we don't. We pick up straight and we just sing and recite and keep going. Um, that's our training. We we actually can do that.
0: So that's that happened to you on stage, like well, you were on. Wow. This has
1: happened to us. Yeah multiple times and there's always these kinds of technical glitches but that Hmm. what that does is that it gives the 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 dancer great independence Hmm. um to be able to manifest on their own if need be
0: okay that is that is really interesting to me because uh like just a week ago uh, i had a workshop with rashnadi so i got my first taste taste of what kathak yoga is and it was hard to keep up and like try to do everything together. Then I realized I don't have to figure out everything today, but just understand what was going on a little bit. Yes. So that was fun. Uh, so yeah, uh, and I've had Saradi and Labuni, the tell and they've told me a little bit of Kathak Yoga. I would like to hear your perspective of what it is. Uh, so could you tell us a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, so... You have heard a little bit about the inspiration of where it comes from from, um, I new... guess
0: I guess the version I know is that um, initially Pandit Chi had difficulty finding like musicians or musicians to perform when he came in, so he started doing a little bit of his own. and the reason that he used the term yoga is because yoga was kind of catching on as a term, and it was kind of popular. And it was, uh, and since yoga is of the mind, and it kind of combines everything together, uh, that's what I know as of the inspiration of how the term Kathak Yoga came in and why it came in to be. One was out of necessity, and one was yoga being a word that was recognized by people. So,
1: um, yeah, so there is definitely um, some of that happening. And the deep inspiration for Guruji mm-hmm. were two things. One is that he was very inspired by the practice of sadhus, mm-hmm. the intense focus that they have to do something and and really keep the rest of the world out, out there and really concentrate on what they're doing. So that amount of focus and concentration was very interesting for Guruji. Um, and then, yes, out of necessity with no other musicians around he had to create the, the music all himself so for his classes he is playing the tabla and he's also singing and so then he is as he's doing that also understanding how beneficial it is to be able to do this for himself do this for his students and for the students to be able to do this for themselves um, the, the The reason for yoga, a little less about the popularity of the the word, but more to do with the fact that yug means union. Okay, But what you're doing in the kattak yoga is you're actually splitting your brain into different parts. One part of the brain is reciting the teka. One part is... Also singing the nagma. These two are very in the same general area. The other part of your brain has to dance the bulls. Okay. The bulls are very much, I consider, in the moment. So if you're walking down the street, if you had to say right, left, right, left, right, left to keep your feet in the right place, that's very much in the moment. And those are the bulls. These are the rhythms. These are your feet are going right, left, right, right to the for five. So it's like really in the moment. When you are reciting theta and singing the nagma, you have to pull yourself out and almost be watching yourself dance while you carry on the rhythmic cycle. So it's a, it's a little bit like you have to pull back, and this, this is your body dancing. This is the other part of your mind reciting the teka and singing the nagma. Now, if you pull them too far apart, then you can't also communicate outwards. Okay, so originally this practice was very much a meditative practice. So really for yourself to be doing in your own practice. But then also it is such an important concept that Guruji wanted to show the world. So he was then bringing it out to show the world what this was all about. And then for bringing the performance piece part of it, You have to then also from here then bring these two things back together at a very high level so that they're happening at the same time. So you're split, but you're so focused that you are really, really joined in one place. So nothing else can come in. So as you're doing the katak yoga, if one microsecond you think Outside of what it is that you're doing, you will be off bal. You will be off sur, you will get dan- dance the wrong thing. So it is very much like it that, that that focus is so intense that it the rest of the world almost is not there. That concentration is so high, and that makes it a very yogic.
0: In your practice, is Kathak Yoga something you end up doing every day or how do you end up approaching it as a Kathakya yourself?
1: Um, yes, it is something that I do every day. It mm-hmm. is not something that I do exclusively.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So um, the first thing that you must learn when mm-hmm. you're dancing is the recitation right. of bowls. Okay, so y- you build the movement on top of the recitation of the bowls. So this this skill comes first. And then when those bowls are so secure in your body that that you can start to add, then you work on the katap yoga. Okay. And it's what it's doing is it's giving you double learning of Mm -hmm. something because you're learning it one way with the bowls and you're learning it a second way with with the um, with the teka. Mm Mm-hmm. And then with the Nagma. So it's it really reinforces the learning to a very, very deep place. Um, and I, in my footwork practice, I alternate often between reciting bowls and reciting teka. And when I'm doing compositions, I, l- I learn them first with the bowls. And then I work on the kattak yoga. Okay. Thanks for breaking that down. The reason why the bowls have to come first is when you are on stage with the with your music, musicians and your audience,
0: mm-hmm.
1: when you recite for them, you have to recite the bowls.
0: Right. Okay.
1: So in when when you're doing the kattak yoga, you're reciting teka. So mm. then that means that I, I can't recite my I my bowls to the musicians. If I only can do one thing, so you have to be able to do both things and switch immediately from one to the other if need be. Hmm, right? That's so, sometimes what has happened on stage is um, if or in practice, if I'm with a musician, I will be doing a composition and they might get off the tal. So, mm-hmm. if I know that they're getting off the tal, then I can switch to take and keep them on and not have to stop. And starting, and then they will come back on with me, and then we can finish together.
0: And has that happened live as well? Where you have to like correct.
1: so You know, sometimes it happens where everybody is falling apart a little bit, and sometimes you move from reciting one thing to the to the other.
0: Okay, that is fascinating. To, yeah, to see that synergy and that you, know, you can bring them back, they can bring you back and all that. And Siviji, uh, I guess, uh, if you're talking about teaching and Kathak Yoga, whenever, like I've, I've had a lot, a lot of people who've been, say, just started teaching and they always feel like they were never ready to start teaching when they started. What was it like for you when you
1: started teaching? It was a bit of a surprise mm-hmm. because basically I was in a class with Guruji uh uh-huh. and- he just said, "You are going to go." Uh, there's a there was a class going on upstairs and a class going on downstairs, and he said, "We're mm-hmm. going to go and teach that one downstairs." <laughs> oh. Oh, okay. So, um, so um, I have had teaching experience before then, so mm-hmm. it was completely um, mm-hmm. uh, out of. But for, it went once I had been studying directly with him here in California. That was basically. He just said one day you're going to teach that class. So I went to teach that class and it was a beginning level cut uh, that class and it was very difficult because I was watching all the students because I was facing them to teach and they seemed very bored to me. <laughs> and so I, I, I started to put out a lot of energy and I was you know doing a lot of things to get their attention. Mm -hmm. And at the end of one hour, I was so exhausted. (laughs) I thought, how am I ever going to do this like regularly? Yeah. And then I, I thought about it and I realized over time that, in fact, the students were not bored. What was happening was that they were concentrating and trying to learn. And because they were new students, the face that they put out was very blank because inside their head they were really trying to understand what was going on Mm -hmm. so once i i understood more about that energy and that facial expression then i realized that it had less to do with me being boring than them having to understand and eventually understanding that in fact their face was part of being a dancer but it takes some time. You have to learn how to do the feet. You have to learn how to coordinate the arms. You have to learn how to speak the bulls. There's a lot of things going on. It is very hard to have control over your face. And at that time, there was no mirror. So I couldn't say, look in the mirror and see what your face is doing. Uh, they had no idea what they were, what they were doing. And so it's very handy now that most studios have a mirror and I do highly recommend that students when they're at home also dance in front of a mirror because you don't know um, sometimes when as a teacher I tell my students I can read the thought bubble Mm -hmm. on their head about what they think they're doing but then I look at their body and their body is not doing the same thing that they're thinking they're doing Mm. and then we talk about how to see you yourself in the mirror so that those two things actually line up with each other. Okay. This
0: is, uh, so I understand when you're standing, how you're supposed to stand and your posture and all that. But it's a bit of a no, no question, I understand. But what is your face supposed to do?
1: Well, ideally, as mm-hmm. of, so here's the interesting thing about uh, the way that our taught. Mm-hmm. So he, he felt that as senior students, you must all experience teaching. Why? Mm-hmm. A, some of you will be good teachers. Mm-hmm. But the experience of trying to teach somebody mm-hmm. makes you a better student. Right. It actually makes you understand what the poor teacher in front of you is going through on a daily, weekly basis. Then you, you actually, as a student, come to class in a very different way. Ideally, the the relationship between teacher and student is a circular one. Mm. I give out energy to the student. The student gives out energy, and that energy gives the teacher more energy to give out to the student. Okay. When you are beginning, you don't have that capacity. You absorb. Mm. You just suck in energy. Mm. And that can be very exhausting for the teacher. And the teacher has to understand how to um, not take that personally, but mm. to understand where the student is in their dance journey. And at some point in time, the student then has to be alerted that they can no longer just absorb, 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 mm. then actually have to produce some energy out. They have to give that's that's part of it, reciting well instead of mumbling your your bowls if you're reciting very strongly then it's giving out energy if when you're dancing you're dancing strong and you're really lifting your feet and you're making good sounds with your feet you're giving out energy okay and then eventually your face also has to give out some kind of energy it doesn't mean you have to have a big toothpaste vial on your face all the time but you have to you have to be engaged with the teacher you have to you have to be looking at them all the time you have to be trying to see if they move that way can i move that way like you have to really be having that energy out to to get that energy back
0: okay i'm processing that and yeah what you said is very interesting because that's a common distinction that people make between say a kid and an adult that a kid primarily just consumes and an adult produces um so, is there some is that something a student can do consciously, or just happens over time? When you say give out energy, is it just literally following the steps that your teacher is doing, listening to them, or is there something more to it that can so?
1: So, when you say is very interesting. That you, it's very clear to you that kids absorb and, and adults produce, but you have to you have to think if you come to an art form as an adult, mm-hmm. you are a child. Okay, so here is the thing. If you were a child and you came to to class and I told you just to do this simple Thadgar and figure Mm -hmm. it out, you would go home and you would just do this Thadgar happily and come back the next week and, and be happy. If I only give you eight steps to do in one class as an adult, you will go home and you will think, why doesn't the teacher like me? Does the teacher think I'm dumb? I can do more than this. I know my right from so all this stuff is all going through it. And the, the, what, what you have to do is actually take the attitude of a child in that I am, I have to learn at the rate that I can learn. There are reasons why things are not necessarily going as fast as my brain would like them to go. Mm -hmm. But the brain and the body are not doing the same thing. And you are coming to it as an adult with a lot of preconceived notions, a lot of alternate training in other things that may or may not contribute positively (laughs) to what Mm -hmm. it is that you're doing. Um, So for, for, for me, as an adult, if you come with that attitude, you actually come with a lot less weight and a lot more openness to Mm. what it is that you are learning. Um, And I will say that sometimes it naturally happens where students realize that maybe that they're just absorbing, but most of the time uh, the teacher ends up having to remind them Mm. all the time to sort of start to come out of themselves and start to really give out energy as opposed to just absorbing, absorbing, absorbing.
0: Hmm. Yes. That is interesting. I think I felt that during one of the a workshop I'd done with uh, Reena ji, where uh, we were doing uh, chakras at a huge, like, hum- like a huge pace. And uh, when, I, when I wasn't getting on, some of people weren't getting it. I think she just made a very, very interesting quip about how, uh, you shouldn't be frustrated if you're not getting something, but have like, and she gives the example of how children in her class, when they spin around, they laugh and fall and that whole laughing and just trying to play with it and trying to get to the next stage instead of like being very hard on yourself and trying to get to the next stage and overthinking it is what adults do. And that kind of holds them back until they learn to let it go, which is another, which is something Roshnadi said. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that's been interesting. The whole concept of letting it go or just being just like uh, laughing at yourself and you don't get something instead of like being hard on yourself. That's been interesting for me learning this as an adult.
1: Oh yeah. But the other thing is, is that children, when when they're at the playground, they fall all the time and they mm-hmm. just pick themselves up and keep going. Right. Right. So the thing is, is that when when adults are first learning how to do spins and checkers and turn, it's scary. Yeah. There's a Mm -hmm. lot of fear, but the thing is, is that what's the worst thing that can happen? You'll fall down. So what? You just get back up. It's not a big deal. (laughs) But we we are really self conscious. Oh, somebody's going to judge me for that. Oh, that's I'm 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 looking very awkward. I'm looking. The thing is, is that yeah, it's uh, uh, for for learning how to do the fast chucker, the swift turn. Mm -hmm. I tell all beginning students that. When, from the time you you are learning the very basics of the technique about spotting about right. when you put your foot down, it will it can take a year. Hmm. Okay, so during that full year, there has to be patience. So you'll turn, you'll try to turn, you'll try to turn, nothing happens, and then one day you'll make one chakra and it's beautiful, and then you'll it's not going to happen again, and then. Two weeks later, you might do two in a row. And then at some point in time, it all drops in and settles in. And then you can consistently turn. And then you work on refining your actual turn technique. So I I say for that full year, you have to be very, very patient. Mm -hmm. And then if at the end of one year, you still can't turn at all, Mm -hmm. then we need to sit down and really, really start thinking about what what is the problem. But it actually never happens that, that they everyone starts to turn at some point in time and everybody forgets that they actually couldn't turn. Hmm. And then for to remind students, especially advanced students, uh, what it was like to learn how to turn because they forget and then they're trying to teach or they're trying to, do something and they're not really absorbing it, then I tell them then go on the other, go the other way. And then they can't turn in the other direction because they've never tried it. And then you realize how terrible and how awkward it all was back then. And then you realize, okay, um, I don't have that muscle when I turn in the wrong direction. Therefore, when I turn in the right direction, maybe if I used it more consciously, my turn would be better. So it's, Mm -hmm. it's, um, it's a good sort of reset. Hmm. Okay.
0: Yeah. For me, like the biggest help in chakras so far has been like literally trying, like my glasses used to do a chakras of their own. Like they'd fall into another dimension whenever I tried to do one. So I just, I started tying them uh, to my head, very secure using a thread and using that has been really interesting for me.
1: Yeah. Well, um, I have to say that for those students who do wear glasses, Mm-hmm. I tell them if your glasses are not flying to the other side of the room, you're not spotting properly. Huh. Okay. So, so it's good that your glasses are going all over the place. And it's good that you've got the strap because you need the strap. Yes.
0: <laughs> I was not going to wear contact lenses for every reaction session. That was getting a little <laughs> too much. And Sevisi, uh, I uh, wanted to touch upon this as well. Like When it comes to your, your connection with Guruji, what was that like?
1: Every moment of every day was about being a teacher, mm-hmm. um, and he he even used to say, "I'm not a dance teacher; I'm a dance preacher." So he was quite almost evangelical about learning and 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 giving out information in all kinds of ways. So. Mm-hmm. It's not as though every time we are walking down the street with him, he is presiding, although that could happen. Uh, but other ways of teaching how how to be around him, how to be in this world, how to think about the world, these were all happening at all times. Um, so I was luckily, I, I feel very blessed that I was able to experience him in many different realms and not just in the classroom. Definitely in the classroom, um, he was very, very focused on the dance um, and, you know, some people felt overly harsh. For me, I didn't necessarily he, he definitely was very strong and could be very harsh, but for him, the harshness again was about how to get the best of the dance and the learning out of you. So if he needed to go there, then he did, and he ha- he did say um, often that I don't like yelling at you, but all—not me personally, but like all of us—I don't like yelling at you at the class. But you're forcing me to yell at you because you're not doing. <laughs> what it is that I want you to do. So, um, and that, that usually that meant is that we weren't practicing enough because if we practiced enough, then whatever we brought to him had a vigor and an effort and um, a conscientiousness that he could see. And he was happy with that. So it wasn't necessarily about reaching a perfect standard, but he wanted each of us to, reach the highest standard for each of us. So he pushed each of us in different ways. Um in different in in and different strengths, different ways, different ways, shapes, and forms. Um and he loved cooking. Um and experiencing him cooking was wonderful he loved flavor he loved taste everything was so particular this thing went with this this went with this and this this is about food but if you think about it it also is about art so you you learn about the art by being with him in different places one of his favorite things to do was to go to a store in in Berkeley called Berkeley Bowl. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, he he would sometimes let us come and push the shopping cart and and go shopping with him, you know. And and you're like, why would you why would you go shopping with him? Well, it's very interesting to go shopping with him because <laughs> <laughs> sometimes he is like asking very tough questions to us while we're trying to find the right orange and then oh. also watching him choose the vegetables. Like, why is he choosing that vegetable so, so interesting? I'm not such a great cook myself. So watching someone who really enjoys and understands flavor and understands how things go, how they smell. Like, I, I believe like that's that acuity that he had for food was, you know, the same kind of acuity that he had for the dance and the aesthetics of the dance. So when you see the person in all of these different areas manifesting those things, it just makes you understand what it is that you're trying to learn and trying to do and trying to absorb.
0: Okay. yeah, That's pretty cool. Uh, Thank you for sharing that story. Thank you for telling us what he did. I love that story about Berkeley Bowl and you going shopping with him and him talking so intensely about things. And, so yeah with that kind of we've talked about we talked a lot about teaching teaching tips teaching practices best practices we talked about your equation with them we talked about yoga i guess would, would be a good time to segue into like you as a performer um just uh, i guess starting off with i guess would be good to talk about say your hanuman character starting off with sita han so could you tell us a little bit about how that came to be how how you were chosen to be hanuman or how you picked it
1: um, yeah, so I think I might back it up a little bit because sure. for us, um, we had been learning, you know, very strong grit and also doing in class different kind of gunpows. But as far as like a full scale dance drama kind of character, mm-hmm. we had not really done a lot of it at, at the time when he was making the Ramayan for the school. So basically we had a very large school. We had many, many students. He wanted to do Ramayan. He wanted to do from the, um, from Ratnakar to the birth of uh, Ram through to the banishment. So a very big chunk of it. And we had many, many different episodes. So the students were doing like, if they were at the ashram training, Ram and Lakshman were training to be warriors, then the the, the class was doing that. But then the main char- characters were to be done by more senior students. And when he was choosing the roles, he chose for me the character of mantra. And the only thing that I knew about mantra at that time was that she was responsible for the banishment of. Ram and that she was not looked upon as a very nice character (laughs) so then I thought about it I'm 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 seeing you know this person is being the hero and this person is being this and this and why am I Mantara and I thought you know am am I am I basically an evil person and maybe that's what he sees in me Uh, you know again that was I'm all kinds of dumb things going through my head. So then I thought, okay, let me just find out a little bit more about this character. So I actually read many different versions of Ramayana and different interpretations and different stories about Mantara. And what I realized is that actually, you know, her, her, she, she was very much cared for, KK and her love was so strong, and her protectiveness was so strong for her, that it over time became a little warped. And by the time we get to the time of the banishment, she is very afraid that her the, the, the princess she's been caring for for so many years is going to lose her status and have nothing. So it's a very big, huge problem Um, And it makes her very scared. And so she is doing this not just because she's 100% evil and that she only wants to do evil things. She's doing this because she has a great love and caring for Kiki. So when you think about that, it doesn't necessarily show up on the surface when you're doing a scene, but it's the whole motivation an understanding of the character. And it made me understand how I could be this character and how this character came to be. Um, it's a little harder to understand, like, you know, just a 100,000% pure evil. That's a like a different headspace you have to put in. So this helped me with this character. And I, I found that it was something that all that research and when I brought it to with me, I didn't necessarily talk to Guruji about it. He just said sort of, you know, go over there and do something like over there because he was trying to pay attention to the main part of the scene. And it was a mm-hmm. kind of a split scene between Mantra and KKE and uh, Dasharat's court. Hmm. So then um, then he, he just kind of kept, expanding the character and putting me in more places and making the scene bigger and bigger. And I understood that because, um, I came to the table with some understanding of my character. So then he was able to pull more things out and make everything much more interesting than if I had done no research and just sort of came and was kind of being, you know, elderly and just hmm. so he, again like that like I said when when he when we were frustrating him in class it was usually because we didn't practice enough hmm. even if you're not perfect if you practice and done really hard work it shows up hmm. in okay. the class okay and um, and so that was my first sort of taste of dance drama and real character and when we came to Sita Haran this was um, he actually gave me the dual characters of Marich, the uncle of um, Ravan, and uh, and Hanuman, and it was Hanuman was not necessarily a, a huge character in it. He was mostly being the diplomatic Hanuman, bringing everybody together. Uh, but I did basically the same thing for both of those characters. Really brought a lot to the table, and uh, I think also for me, I the hidden strengths. You know that he doesn't always he doesn't know all of his strength, but his strength comes out when needed. Hanuman, and that he's a bit playful, and that mm-hmm. there is there is on the one hand great devotion. On the other hand, there's some monkey mischievousness. Hmm. There's charm. There's heroism. There's so many aspects of Hanuman. So even though they weren't necessarily all coming together for like being, you know, expanded upon in Sitaharan, those mm-hmm. were all of those things that I was coming to the table with for that character. And, um, and again, that character ended up being very robust in that show and I think maybe because I loved it so much then everybody seemed to really really love it too and so what do you mean by being
0: a robust character in in this context?
1: A lot of times people see Hanuman from one aspect. So there is obviously the great devotion to Ram is a huge part of it. The, then when you come to play the character and you are playing devotion, 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 it is strong, but it is very much in one direction. Actually, Hanuman has the power to fix the whole situation. So why doesn't he do that? You have to have that hidden in you. If you don't have that hidden in you and you're not holding that hiddenness in you, then the potential and the, the character is not as strong. He's like a tribal god. I feel that his personality as Hanuman is, also has a little bit of mischievousness in him. The story of, of the mango, you you have to also bring that in there. There has to be all of this. That's why, I mean, he's very robust. If I think if I came to the character... Just from one direction, I don't think it would have sparked the interest to make the entire Son of the Wind revolve around his adventures.
0: Okay, so I guess that's a great transition. Could you tell us a little bit about what? Uh, so, since we know what happened in Sita, and could you tell us a little bit about what happened in Son of the Wind and what Hanuman did in that?
1: Basically, when I was researching Hanuman for yeah. Son of the Wind, I I discovered that he did so many things that we don't really hear too much about. It's hmm. not the big part. The 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 warrior Hanuman, the, the valorous Hanuman um, are not necessarily seen so often. Hmm. And I found that very intriguing. And I really wanted to bring that part of the character out in Son of the Wind. The, hmm. the thing that happened and part of the reason why we were going in this direction with this part of the story is that, Guruji had done Ramayan with the school twice up to the banishment and then he had done Sita Haran which was which was during the banishment and the kidnapping of Sita through to the the killing of Bali Sugriv and Bali
0: right.
1: and he always wanted to finish it and then he passed away and didn't finish it hmm. and so for, for us the continuation of that story is very meaningful. right? And being able to do that within the context of Hanuman puts a different sort of lens on that section because it's really from his point of view um, as opposed to from Ram's point of view. Not to say that Ram is not, he's always the main character, but it is interesting to see this section of the Ramayana from Hanuman's point of view. Um, so we are basically following him through re- the the finding of Sita. It begins with the a short scene of the kidnapping, so that we can set the context of what what is why this is all happening through the death of Ravan.
0: Okay. And one thing I want to understand since you, since you said like uh, Hanuman is a multifaceted cat, it's not just about devotion. So when you're bringing out different aspects, is it literally through enacting different scenes or you're doing it through your expression work or how do you bring out the different aspects of him through your work?
1: Um, you know, definitely part of it's through the narrative. Yeah. Um, but it's, it is a lot about the expression. Okay. And how Hanuman is acting. Acting, uh, is, is interacting with the different characters. And so because it's all from his point of view, he's interacting with Sita, he is interacting with armies, he's interacting with Ram, he's interacting with Ravan, like in, in with uh, Mandodri, like all of these things, he is interacting and he brings different parts of his personality to each of them. So we have um, one one scene which is a pretty unusual scene of where he's going down into the underworld mm-hmm. to rescue Ram and Lakshman from Mahiravan, mm-hmm. Ravan's sort of alter ego in the in the underworld. Okay. And um, this is a very interesting story, um, and i I found this in my research in a book that Philip Lukendorf, who is a Hanuman scholar, um, okay. in his research, he he found this this story and he talked about it in his book. Um, but it's very, it, what's really fascinating to me is that when I read the story, I I realized that um, J.K. Rawlings, who did uh, Harry mm-hmm. Potter, I had thought that it was such an like Unusual concept about the whore cruxes that, you know, but in fact, it's kind of basically the story of Hanuman and Mahiravan in the underworld because Mahiravan basically is invincible because he took his essence and he put it in five lamps. Oh. And you had to blow all the lamps out at exactly the same time for him to be vulnerable. Hmm. And no one could do it, but Hanuman blows all the lamps out at at once, and then he's able to be defeated. Hmm. I actually never heard of the Mahayavan story. That's yes. Movie. It's it's very fascinating, and I highly recommend um um you you check out Doctor Lukendorf's book. Uh, it's a really wonderful book. Um, but yeah. So that that in that scene. There are a lot of things happening. He also is, he convinces Mahiravan to basically put his own head on the chopping block, mm-hmm. but but um, Hanuman doesn't do it. He, Ram kind of eggs him on into it, but that there's like some humor there, even though we're talking about war and all that kind of stuff. So we're bringing in these elements um, mm-hmm. of things and I think that in his interactions with Sita he finds her in the garden so much compassion but then uh, he turns turns around and then he destroys the garden and he's chasing everybody around so there's like all of these things that he flips back and forth between which are really fun and interesting
0: okay <laughs> yeah thanks a lot for going through that explaining that I think I'm definitely going to look up Mahirawan after this because there are the things I haven't known before. Um, and as going through your bio, I, I found I didn't I didn't know about your solo work. So I think it'd be a good time to touch upon that as well. Could you tell us a little bit about your solo work with the House Foundation and a little bit about that?
1: Sure. Um, yeah, the the one thing that was always really deeply interesting to me and was Guruji's desire for everyone to understand their own history so when he was talking to students he always asked you know where are you from like where are your parents from what is your mother tongue Hmm. he always wanted to know these things and he felt that you should be connected with your ancestry okay so for me, I, I I saw this kind of as an objective observer because for myself, my father is Chinese and my mother is Japanese. Mm-hmm. But when I was growing up, at that time there were no no Asians um, in in the place that I lived. I lived in Edmonton, in Alberta, in Canada. Mm-hmm. So every day when I went to school, there was a lot of name calling. Um, there's a lot of, you know, especially about my facial features. Right. Like, you know, why is your face so flat? They Like, kids would ask me, did your mom slam the door on your face? You know, why are your eyes this way? So mm-hmm. I, I really felt, I really was, didn't want to be Asian. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And there were no other Asians for me to hang out with. So I basically tried to make myself as non-Asian as possible. So I, you know, refused to speak, you know, either Cantonese or Japanese with my parents. I I really worked on my English diction and my pronunciation so that I didn't feel like I had an accent. I worked really hard on writing compositions to just like try to not be Asian. And Mm -hmm. so when I, you know, went through all of these, Things and then I'm, I'm, finally I meet this art form that I find very fascinating, which is not of my culture. So I I dive into this 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 art form, you know, not because I I want to escape my own culture. It's just that I found the art form so incredibly beautiful, and Guruji basically always taught it as though everybody can learn it. So I didn't think that oh I'm I'm an Asian learning this this South Asian Mm -hmm. art form. I just learned it as an art form. And then when over the years, as I watched him ask students over and over again, you know, where are you from? Which part of India? Not just India, which part, which city, you know, he just really wanted to know those things. Um, And when they didn't know the answer, then he was like, "You, you have to know, go and find out. So then I started to think a little bit more about my own heritage. And I was like, well, you know, maybe I need to think a little bit more about these two cultures um, that have come together and made me. They're basically two warring cultures too. So (laughs) what does that mean as far as my my personality is concerned? Um, And then I was was really trying to understand how to sort of resolve this and bring this together. And um, I thought, you know, if I could do a story that was from the culture of one of my parents and show it in kathak style so i don't want to dilute the story itself and i don't want to dilute the kathak tradition can mm-hmm. i do that so then yeah. I, I i went to I, I decided i would first do one um for, for Chinese, my father's tradition, and I found this story, Hu Yi and Changu. and it's a very uh, famous story that everyone knows. Um, it's, uh, it's about um, the... It used to be that the, the sun was actually a sunbird, and there are ten of them. And at some point in time, instead of one waking up every day and then being the sun and going all 10 decide to wake up and they're burning the earth and everything. And so, you know, big disaster. And so then they have to call on the great archer and so on and so forth. So it's a, it's like a, and it's a tragic uh, love story too. So I thought, perfect. And it doesn't have necessarily all different kinds of uh, beings that I would have to make up different mudras for, or, you know, so that I want, I could use the basic language that I'm familiar with. Um, So uh, with the grant from the Haas Foundation, and I was working um, um, in a program, I was an artist in residence at the Oakland Asian Cultural Center. So that was very helpful to me um, to be able to work at that location on this story. Um, I, I basically, have done this story in the style of Katak. And it's, um, I've done it a number of times. And it's uh, like most recently did it for Marghazi, which was the festival that um, was done in San Francisco, but online. Um, this, this, um, actually just a few weeks ago. And it's really an amazing thing because the story is very recognizable for. Chinese and they're seeing their story in a different style of dance which is opening their minds to different art form and then for the Kathak community who is used to seeing many stories about Ramayan or Krishna, Lila and things like that it is it's it's to see another culture's story, but done in their art form. It actually turned out to be a really beautiful way to, to kind of bring these two things together. And um, what I really would love to do, um, and I'm working on it right now, is um, a story for my mother, which will be a Japanese story. Um, and what I'm thinking about doing is one on the bamboo princess, which is also a very famous story. Uh, in Japanese
0: culture um so yeah thanks because yeah um that's a very fascinating story I'm glad I asked you about your solo work it wasn't something I had had my initial list of topics but I'm glad I caught my eye I got to hear this really really amazing what you had to go through and why how that played into making this piece and I was just curious about this Me if there is a simple answer or if there's an answer for this, like in terms of Kathak in China and Japan, do you know if there's much of a scene right now? What's it like
1: there? Um, it's. I do actually think that um, there are some artists that have gone to Japan. I am not too sure if too many have gone to China. Japan is very open to right. other cultural um, sort of, experiences and art forms so there are are a lot of um, Japanese that study Hawaiian dance and um, I think that there are um, artists that go from India to teach tabla and teach other um, melodic instruments and I think that there I don't know that there's a huge scene there but I think that some people have actually had the chance to either take a class or see a performance live
0: understood um, so because in terms of the other asian countries except india where i've had guests from so far of course i've had someone from people from pakistan i'm gonna have someone from sri lanka and i've had someone from south korea so i'm always curious as to where else people are or uh, figuring out what they're up to yeah
1: and, um, I definitely am hoping to um, once, especially once I finish the Japanese story, I would definitely love to go to Japan because of some of my mom's family is still there, and okay. love to be able to show them in person a little bit more about katak.
0: Mm-hmm. That'd be amazing, for sure. And I th- yeah, because I, I think just a couple of days ago I was reading about I think a prince, a princess in Japan who they say was born in ayodhya or has a connection to ayodhya i haven't, I haven't read about it completely but i look at, i was looking into that uh, and as we wind down just wanted and wanted to touch upon the leela collective as well um, since we're talking about the beginning of the interview i know recently all of you came together under an umbrella but it, so can you tell us a little bit about how that happened um uh
1: yeah i we just um we really wanted to find a place for that was a kind of supportive place for us to be able to express the direction of our, our artistic creativity. And, um, you know, the two biggest things that we we have on tour right now are speak, which is um, Rachna and Rina's collaboration with, Michelle Dorans, and Dormesha Sombrey-Edwards, which is a really, really wonderful tap and cut tech collaboration. And the other one is actually like on another um, end of the range, which is a full-length dance drama, traditional dance drama, which is Sun of the Wind. So those are our two two main touring uh, works right now. Um, We have done, we're we're also we have been working on um, a California Karana piece, which is really focused on katak yoga, and where that that's being more developed over time. Um, and we are hoping, you know, unfortunately with COVID, we're never sure whether or not this is going to happen or it's going to happen in the way that we wanted to. But we're definitely working on a performance in the fall for that. Um, And we'll have to see how that manifests, whether or not it's partially in person, scattered over (laughs) a distance, how that's going to work. Um, And we also have been working um, to do support the the Katak Sola, which for us is a really, really important part of the tradition. It was very important for our Guruji. And um, we feel that that is um, not not the focus of the majority of the Kathak world. And so, you know, the the true Kathak solo of, you know, being one dancer on the stage, ideally a minimum, an hour and a half. Um, our Guruji could dance four hours straight, no costume change, <laughs> you know, bowl after bowl. So many things. Um, these are hard to do, and um, I, we really want to um, keep a lot of focus on that. So we have done um, a festival which uh, highlights the Katak Solo called Continuum, which we did in 2019 in San Francisco and Denver. We're definitely going to be bringing that back periodically. It's not just dance. We also are, um, have highlighted musicians Um, both tabla and melodic instruments um, at this festival too.
0: Yes, yeah, so I have yeah a couple of stories over there. One was like, I really liked the person who was doing the vocals for the California Karana. I actually went to Sarah and I asked her that he wasn't new of the song because I, I can't Google Dherana, Dherana, Dherana to figure out what the song is. Uh, But yes, uh, that's, uh, I really like the song in the California Karana and what you put out there. I'd, I'd love to catch that one in person. And yes, Kathak, the Kathak solo has been interesting for me because I understand it's important and I'd like to do it. But it's also, like, it, uh, when I did the math for it, like, if I had to do a Kathak solo with the private lessons and everything, it's almost as much as my my car. So it's also a question of, like, for me, like, when when you're doing it, it's the amount of money you're putting in. So as a beginner student, these are the things I think about, whether to do a Kathak solo or not. So that's also important.
1: Well, um, um, I think the thing is, is that the, the art form, at its essence, is a solo mm-hmm. art form. And so... Right. That, that is, uh, it's not necessarily, um, not everybody has to do one, mm-hmm. but we as performers at, and the senior disciples, we feel that it's a really important part of the tradition that we want, um, we want everyone to understand and to be able to see. And it is really challenging. I would say that it is to do a Katak solo, you have to train for a marathon. And then once you train for the marathon, then you have to dance the marathon in a very artistic way. And Mm -hmm. you can't just dance one part of it. You can't just dance straight. You can't just dance. You have to dance everything, all of these things. So it really is challenging the dancer in all ways. And for the audience, it's amazing because they actually see the art form in its fullest in all aspects of it. So, um, that's part of the reason why we're really wanting to make sure that it doesn't get left behind in this world of, you know, productions and fancy things.
0: Okay. Understood. Thanks for explaining why you, why it's important to you and what and how you deal with it and the standards you have for it. And kind of wrapping up my last question for you, um, so when it comes to say Kathak, what, is the impact you want to have on Kathak and what do you want your legacy to be?
1: I still want to go back to what we talked about earlier, which is about communication and communication is also a not necessarily my physical, my, my ego communicating with your ego I think also on a performing level and as a teacher, you are actually opening yourself up to something that's bigger and that's higher and that is coming through you and going out. Okay, so I think that being able to touch people on that level is really important. I I feel that, having love and passion and interest in such a great art form is really important. So if I can do that through teaching and I can inspire the same kind of love and passion for the art form in a student, that's part of the legacy. Um, If I am able to preserve the really important parts of the art form and also help the art form evolve as it has to an art form cannot be static cannot be a perfect jewel not to be touched it's a living and breathing thing so it it has to it has to move with time somehow without losing all of the history and the beauty that has come to it over the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. So if I'm able to do that, I feel that's a very important part of the legacy. And, you know, if, if in a performance, I'm able to transport someone away from their daily life Mm-hmm. To another place through the art, then mm-hmm. I feel that's part of the legacy.
0: Okay. Oh, yeah. Thank you for clarifying um, and telling us about how how you want to touch people's lives and impact both as a teacher and a performer. And we just uh, we started this episode discussing how teaching itself is a performance. So it's it's nice to tie all that down together. And with that, I kind of bring this episode to a conclusion. So I really thanks a lot for coming on. I really enjoyed learning about Kathak and learning about you as a result as well. Thanks a lot.
1: Thank you so much, Namaskar.